0: pfk in los angeles this is living in the usa i'm john wiener talking about politics thinking about the left later in the show monday april 4th is the day of action to abolish student debt when thousands of young people will gather in washington dc to say pick up the pen joe and abolish student debt via executive action astra taylor will explain she's co-founder of the debt Collective. Also, the dangers and the benefits of antidepressants. P.E. Moskowitz will talk about the science and about personal experiences. Their report, Breaking Off My Chemical Romance, is featured in The Nation magazine's new special issue on drugs. But first, our Washington political update with Harold Meyerson. He's editor-at-large of The American Prospect. Hi, Harold. Welcome back. Always good to be here, John. Well, let's start with Biden's budget. This is the one that involves reconciliation, submitted this week after months of delays. Budgets are the way you pay for your policy priorities. Where is Build Back Better in this budget?
1: Uh, It's not. And uh, the reconciliation is actually fairly separate from this. That will come later, presumably, when they've gotten Joe Manchin to sign off on every dot, every comma, every semicolon and whatever, because they do not want to go through what they went through last year all over again.
0: Uh, So uh, this doesn't really matter that much is what I gather that build back better is missing from Biden's budget because Biden's budget is, is, is what it's a sketch.
1: A, it's a sketch and sketches never really have made it uh, through Congress lately. Uh, Congress tends to just do continuing resolutions uh, which extend the current level of funding uh, a a little more. Now, in in this case, uh, there have been some current levels of funding uh, which have been increased. And I think it's likely Congress will go along with some of them. Certainly the amount of money allocated to the Defense Department. Uh, (laughs) The annual budgets uh, basically divide up Uh, the uh, non-mandatory spending that the government does for Social Security and Medicare and such uh, by uh, cabinet departments. And not surprisingly, therefore, uh, the amount allocated to the Pentagon greatly exceeds that uh, of uh, any other department and at times greatly exceeds that of every other department. And given uh, what's going on in Ukraine right now, uh that, uh, that figure is going up.
0: Biden is proposing a billionaire's tax, a minimum tax of 20% on the top 100th of 1% of American households. I saw the Cato Institute said that under the billionaire's tax, quote, patience and prudence would be punished. I wonder what you think about that. <laughs>
1: Patience and prudence, I think, are the names of, uh, of uh, two women on the staff of, uh, of the Cato Institute. Uh, uh, basically, um, the, the proposal is the result of two extraordinary initiatives. One, that of economists at UC Berkeley, chiefly Gabriel Zuckman and Emmanuel Saiz, who demonstrated that the... Uh, average level of income tax paid by, uh, the wealthiest, you know, point, some point of 1% of Americans was about 8%. And then the ProPublica story, uh, spearheaded by Jesse Eisinger, which uh, actually got a leak from the IRS and found out what, uh, specific wealthy individuals like Elon Musk and Warren Buffett and, uh, uh those folks, uh, uh, Jeff be- Bezos have been paying an in, in income tax, which is you know, sometimes somewhere between zero and 1%. Uh, given that, uh, I think uh, uh, you know, that there's not only a clear logic, but a clear case uh, to be made to the American people who are generally for taxing the rich and understand that the rich have been getting away uh, with uh, holy hell uh, uh, in not paying taxes. And uh, you know, the notion that uh, patience and prudence are not being <laughs> rewarded. Uh, well, I mean, what, what are these folks doing with their excess uh, income? Uh, they're buying their sixth and seventh home, they're going into outer space and letting, billionaire, letting fellow millionaires and billionaires bid for seats on their spacecraft uh, and so on. Uh, I think if you're concerned about getting money for important targeted investment, like for reshoring industry, uh, for making housing more affordable, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, you want the government to have uh, the funds that are adequate to dealing with the public's needs.
0: Well, now it's time for news of the class struggle in America, regular feature of this broadcast. I discovered today that the Associated Press has a page online called simply Strikes. And here's what it says today, Wednesday. Kellogg's workers win big raises after spate of strikes. Omaha, Nebraska, several hundred workers at the Kellogg's plant that makes Cheez-Its, won a new contract that gives them a 15% wage increase over three years. This comes after 1,400 workers at the company's cereal plants went on strike for three months last fall. Yesterday, Minneapolis, Minneapolis teachers have approved a new contract which will end a strike that has kept students out of classrooms for three weeks. The union represents 4,500 teachers and support professionals. The issues were wage increases, smaller class sizes, layoff policy and mental health support for students. Yesterday, Los Angeles, thousands of grocery workers in Central and Southern California have voted to authorize their union to call a strike against major supermarket chains as contract negotiations are set to resume this week. Hattiesburg, Mississippi, call center workers who handle Medicare issues for Americans went on a one-day strike at facilities in Hattiesburg, Mississippi and Bogalusa, Louisiana. Uh, they are employed by a private company that mans the federal, staffs the federal call centers. Employees there went on strike for the first time ever on Wednesday, calling for paid sick leave and better health insurance. The spokesperson for the Communications Workers of America, which represents them, said, "These workers are helping American citizens get access to affordable health care every day, but they have really unaffordable health care plan of their own. They deserve a middle-class living wage. Mount Vernon, Washington. Tulip, daffodil farm workers strike over wages and conditions. A group of Washington state tulip and daffodil farm workers have gone on strike. The strike comes just ahead of the Skagit Valley Tulip Festival, one of the main attractions of that part of the state of Washington. Uh, A leader of the strike uh, held up a sign over her head on Wednesday that read, Welga. Uh, with hands covered in clusters of sores that she says were caused by the caustic liquid daffodils release when cut. Uh, So we have Kellogg's workers, Minneapolis teachers, Southern California grocery workers, Medicare call center workers in Mississippi and Louisiana, tulip and daffodil pickers in Washington, this all in the past week, either going on strike or authorizing a strike, or winning a strike. Some of these are little. Some of these are really big. What do you make of all this?
1: Well, the times they are a changing in a good direction. Uh, I wonder if tulip and daffodil, by the way, are related to patience and prudence. Uh, uh, you know, <laughs> good. they're a quartet. Good but, point. Uh, th- really, uh, what we're seeing is a combination of uh, the highest level of public support for unions, according to Gallup, uh, in fifty years. Uh, a job market. Where workers feel more confident that uh, you know they can get another job that's as good uh, or better than the one they're in now, and worker morale and confidence is key uh, to uh, you know kind of the the foundation uh, that you uh, you want to lay if you're going to have a strike. So that's going on. They also, and to the degree that this is uh, uh, known yet, uh, it is not clear. But they also have the most pro-worker National Labor Relations Board behind them, uh, I would argue, at least since the early ni- the, the mid-1930s. Um, and I wrote a, a, a piece that we posted online on Wednesday uh, at the Prospect about the General Counsel of the NLRB, who is uh, basically uh, restating a whole set of rulings that uh, really are much fairer to workers in in their concerted actions. So a lot is going on and uh, bless the uh, Associated Press for putting a a daily uh, page out about it. Uh,
0: Meanwhile, back in Washington, the Senate will soon confirm Ketanji Brown Jackson as a Supreme Court Justice. Almost almost all Republicans will vote against her uh, on the grounds that she's a judicial activist. I wonder what you think of that argument.
1: Yeah, well, uh, again, on Wednesday, Susan Collins said she would vote for uh, uh, Judge uh, Jackson. So uh, we we have at least one Republican uh, who is uh, going to vote yes on her confirmation. Judicial activism, uh, which was a charge initially raised, I guess, against the Warren court. Uh, The Warren court sadly has been gone for a very, very long time, over half a century now. And uh, all of the activism that I've seen, uh, activism verging on chutzpah, uh, a technical (laughs) legal term, has has come uh, from the right, uh, declaring George W. Bush president while cutting off a recount in Florida. Striking down uh, the the heart of uh, vo- voter rights legislation shortly after Congress had essentially unanimously passed uh, the extension of, of of that act, and just a whole slew of decisions uh, striking down a uh, settled law. And you know, we have Roe v. Wade coming at some point uh, later this year. Uh, I, wrote a, I I noted in a just a d- decision last week where the court. Um, rejected the uh, appeal of uh, of uh, some Navy SEALs that they, they didn't want to be uh, undeployed or or worse because they hadn't taken the vaccine. That the three most Trumpy members of the court, justices uh, Gorsuch, Alito, and Thomas, had written a dissent saying, "Well, no, uh, we 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 think the Pentagon decisions about deploying these workers." Uh, are are wrong and and should be reversed. And as the Biden administration's solicitor general pointed out, that position essentially inserts federal judges into the military chain of command. Federal judges can say when it's okay to obey an order and when it's okay to disobey an order, which is a little bit uh, corrosive to the notion of military discipline. Uh, And, you know, the the other six justices... uh, Uh, you know, said no, including a a, a written statement from, of all people, Brett Kavanaugh saying, you know, the the commander in chief is the president, not federal judges, you know, which you would think a kind of even rudimentary reading of the constitution would make clear. But I I bring that up just to highlight that, you know, if you're looking for judicial activism in the last 50 years, you look to the right-wing justices, not not the progressive ones. And so the, the, you know, the charge against Judge Jackson is utterly pro forma. And in in a way, it's sort of almost perversely nostalgic. Yeah, there was a time (laughs) when, you know, uh, the the right could uh, raise this charge with some credibility. But that time is half a century gone and buried.
0: Now we want to shift to la where the mayoral race is heating up i'm starting to get mailers from rick caruso on very high quality paper and very beautiful colors he's the of course the white billionaire who's challenging karen Basti the member of Congress from South LA, who's a former community organizer. The biggest Rick Caruso mailer that I've gotten has the slogan, Clean Up LA. And it's sort of a overview of his campaign. It says his story is about the strength of faith and family. He grew up hearing about his grandfather's early days working as a gardener from the back of a pickup truck. It says Rick served as an altar boy. It says he created tens of thousands of jobs in his businesses. It says he's helped homeless and at-risk kids with his many charities. It says that when he was president of the Police Commission, this was when the LAPD was under the federal consent decree, he restored trust in the LAPD. It says that when USC asked him to take over as chair of the Board of of Trustees after that billion-dollar sexual abuse crisis, he demanded accountability for sexual abuse. And uh, he says he knows what to do to end rising crime, rampant homelessness, and costly corruption. And he calls himself, it's signed, Democrat Rick Caruso. Uh, does all that mean he's he can beat Karen Bass?
1: Uh, I doubt it, but uh, there have been times when L.A. went to the right uh, in its voting preferences, most notably in 1993 in the wake of the uh, Rodney King uprising uh, when uh, it elected Richard Reardon.
0: I think uh, he was uh, an altar boy, too,
1: probably. He was an altar boy, too. Yes. <laughs> uh, and like Rick Caruso, he was very, very rich, though not as rich as Rick Caruso uh, is is currently. Uh, and, uh, you know, he, he ran on a, you know, restore law and order uh, uh, platform, which is basically what Caruso is running on his altar boy status, uh, to the contrary notwithstanding. Although, you know, because I mean, some altar boys can be a little disruptive, uh, uh, you know, and 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 he's doing a version of that. And I might add, like Richard Reardon, like uh, other very wealthy people who have run for office, he has a slew of various well-paid consultants uh, working on every word and, as you pointed out, the quality of paper uh, in his uh, in his uh, 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 mailings, uh, whether that's sufficient. Actually, the, the question is, is it sufficient to get into a runoff? Uh, because uh, unless someone gets 50%, which is highly unlikely, given that it's a crowded field, the top two finishers in the primary, uh, which I think is still in June, will, uh, will run off in, in November for mayor. Um, and there are really sort of three people in the running for that. As you said, Karen Bass and Rick Caruso, also Kevin DeLeon, city councilman and former president of the state Senate uh, from an East Side district. Uh, so that's really where this is at right now.
0: And finally, uh, I know we'll get complaints if we do not mention Donald Trump. So we have oh, to yeah. say just one quick word about Donald Trump. Last week, he withdrew his endorsement of Representative Mo Brooks, who's running for the Senate in Alabama, even though Mo Brooks was the first member of Congress to suggest using the January 6th session of Congress, which was dedicated to the symbolic recording of the electoral vote, to use that to try to nullify and and overturn the results of the election and he anticipated that the January 6th events could evolve violence. He wore body armor that day when he spoke to Trump's rally. In the prospect, you ask an excellent question about this. What would lead Trump to withdraw his support from so fervid a numbskull? What's the answer? Uh, The answer
1: is that Trump had, according to Mo Brooks, repeatedly asked Brooks, Uh, Could he get something going in Congress to rescind the 2020 presidential election? And Brooks said, I don't think there's anything under the law that I can do, Uh, which only goes to show that Brooks should have continued wearing his body armor uh, because the real threat to him came from Trump, who then withdrew his endorsement uh, for Brooks's failure to figure out a way to rescind the 2020 presidential election
0: news of america's fervid numbskulls from harold meyerson read him at prospect.org harold thank you for today's report (laughs) thank you john take care It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. The day of action to abolish student debt is Monday, April 4th, when thousands of young people will gather in Washington, DC to say, pick up the pen, Joe, and abolish student debt via executive action. For comment, we turn to Astra Taylor. She's a documentary filmmaker, writer, and political organizer. She's co-founder of The Debt Collective, a union for debtors with roots in the Occupy Wall Street movement. She writes for The Guardian, The New York Times, and The Nation. Astra Taylor, welcome back.
2: Thanks so much for having me.
0: Well, let's start with facts and figures, the extent of student debt. How many people are we talking about? How much do they owe? And why is this an issue right now?
2: The student debt crisis has reached epic proportions. Uh, The best estimates we have are, we are racing towards $1.8 trillion. That includes federal and private student loans. The vast majority of student loans out there are, are federal, meaning that they are secured by the federal government. That number includes, we estimate around 45 million households So 45 million debtors. And you have to understand that these are debts that affect whole families. So often a parent takes out what's called a Parent PLUS loan for their kids. Sometimes kids take out student loans and lend them to their family members. So we like to talk about these debts being household debts. They don't just affect individual people. These debts are disproportionately held by folks who are people of color, who are working class by definition. Wealthy people don't take out student loans to go to school, right? If your parents are millionaires, they probably pay for you to go to school. So we think everybody who has student debt, uh, you know, it's a sign that they are um, they are they don't have wealth, right? They have debt. The last thing I want to say about it, though, to your point in the introduction is not all student debtors are young. In fact, the fastest growing demographic of student loan holders are people of retirement age. And this is complicated, but it's because on the one hand, people it shows people aren't able to pay them off, right? They're going through life and carrying these loans with them. And it's also because we live in a society where there isn't economic security and job security. So if something happens, you're told it's your fault, go back to school and get a degree. That means taking out loans probably when you are should be saving for retirement. Uh, and so... Something on the order of one hundred and fifty thousand people are actually having their social security garnished over yeah. all the student loans.
0: And um, how many um, people or how many households are right now in delinquency or default?
2: That's a really interesting question. Before the pandemic, over a million people defaulted on their student loans every year. And you know, since the pandemic started, we have been in a federal loan payment pause, and that was actually implemented by Donald Trump. Uh, Joe Biden has extended that payment pause multiple times. So that has spared people from default within this specific uh, COVID crisis. But, but what it shows, what the statistics from before show is that huge numbers of people are not able to keep up with their loans. They're not able to, uh, it, it's not enough to provide some of the programs that the government provides, such as income dividend repayment or forbearance, you know, these programs your listeners are probably familiar with, that they're defaulting and, and overwhelmingly, these are the, um, the borrowers with the least, with the least resources, least intergenerational wealth.
0: Well, the news this week is that Biden has submitted his budget to Congress, and it contains nothing about Congress passing legislation for giving student debt. Do you consider that bad news?
2: I actually don't, uh, but I do consider the overall budget to be very distressing because, I, you know, there's a whole lot of money in there for what we could call violence work, right, for the police, for the military, uh, you know, the, a huge um, increase of the military budget, you know, instead of care work, instead of the work of educating people, um, taking care of their health, uh, those services that we need so that we, don't, uh, you know, the pub, we need to be publicly providing so people don't have to take on debt <laughs> when they go to the hospital or when they go to school, um, but I will say this about canceling student debt, it actually doesn't cost the government any money. That The money for student loans is out the door, right? It is out the door when they lend it. And so it doesn't uh, worry us too much that it wasn't included in the budget. It does make us sad, for example, that there isn't money for free community college, which was a core campaign promise for the Biden administration. The fact is, uh, Cancelling student debt will cost taxpayers nothing. It will actually make us all richer. Uh, and this is something Elizabeth Warren says a lot that canceling student debt is the biggest bottom-up economic stimulus that uh, the government can do because just think about it, all that money that people were paying to their student loan servicers would instead go for things like food, maybe saving up for a down payment on a house, maybe daycare, uh, you know, maybe even enjoying life a bit, maybe buying some books or whatever you wanna do. Um, and so we would all benefit, actually, even if we don't individually have student debt from cancellation.
0: So Biden has not asked Congress to pass legislation for giving student debt, but you say he doesn't need legislation to abolish student debt.
2: Yeah, he doesn't. This is very, very, very clear because there is something called Compromise and Settlement Authority. It was part of the Higher Education Act of 1965 initially, but then it was also renewed every time the Higher Education Act was reauthorized. And guess who was in Congress reauthorizing that Higher Education Act? Well, Joe Biden himself. So what I'm saying is that the Congress has already authorized The president and the secretary of education to cancel student debt and that makes sense because when you borrow oh, sorry when you lend money you don't have to collect on it right so the idea that you're lending money implies the idea that you can cancel the debt Uh, and in fact this is the same authority that is currently being used to cancel the interest that is part of that student loan payment pause i mentioned so it's very very head scratching to the debt collective that the president is saying well do i have the legal authority to cancel student debt when with one hand he's using it uh, to cancel interest. So absolutely, this is a really important thing because what it means is with the flick of a pen, President Biden can cancel federal student loans. And that's really important at a moment when he's being, uh, when his agenda is being sabotaged, not just by Republicans, but by corporate Democrats.
0: Didn't he already promise he would forgive $10,000 worth of student debt during the campaign? Wasn't that a campaign promise?
2: Oh, John, he did, but he didn't just, cancel. he didn't promise that. He promised to cancel an immediate, that is a quote, minimum, another quote, of $10,000 of student debt. So that is for every single borrower, and it's not means tested. In other words, no income requirements. He also promised to cancel all undergraduate student debt for people who went to public schools, Uh, and also to private HBCUs, Historically Black Colleges and Universities and MSIs, Minority Serving Institutions. He made a big, big, big promise. And this is one, again, that he can keep uh, with the flick of a pen. And it seems to me that it would be a mighty smart thing to do in advance of the midterms because a whole lot of polling has come out just in the last few months showing that it's overwhelmingly popular across party lines. It's popular with people who didn't even go to college. It's popular with old people, young people, black people, white people, with uh, Latino uh, likely voters. It's really a popular and smart thing to do.
0: One more uh, thing about the budget. If you read the news carefully, you find... $2.7 2.7 billion to improve customer service for student loan borrowers 2.7 billion I wonder if you have any comment on that
2: that is egregious and you actually just highlighted something that i had missed you know it's interesting the debt collective has spent many 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 hours over the last few months compiling evidence that we have been submitting to the federal government about the incredible abuses That these loan servicers inflict on borrowers they miss they misplace payments they don't let people enroll in the programs that would save them money you know and they're essentially just making money off of what should be uh making money hand over fist over what should be a public good uh and so that is that's outrageous you will definitely be seeing us uh commenting on that later in the day
0: now some of your critics say college education is an asset. It increases your ability to earn money. So you should pay for it, like investing in any other asset.
2: I think they're sad. I think that's such a sad way of thinking about education. I mean, I'm very interested in democracy. I know you are as well. And it's something I've written about. A, a functioning democracy needs an educated citizenry. And we need people who don't just treat education as um, skills training or or career training as something to profit off of, but holistically, right? So that we can think, we can deliberate, we can reason, we can decide together. Um, you know, but less philosophically than that, I benefit as a citizen by there being um, lawyers graduating from law school and doctors graduating from medical school who, because they are not buried in student debt, have the ability to become uh, public defenders or uh, you know. Uh, general practitioners or family doctors or dentists in a rural area. You know, we live in society. Uh, when you take this idea that education is simply an asset and you should maximize your return on investment, you get really pathological outcomes. Um, and so I, we really encourage people to think outside of that box uh, and to understand that we all should be invested literally uh, in whether uh, our, our, the people we share the world with can access education
0: great. And some people also say it's un- what you are proposing is unfair to people who paid their student debt cuz you're letting other people off the hook. What do you say to that?
2: Well, I actually this one I this is where I get to be a bit smug and say well actually I paid my student debt. <laughs> uh, I'm you know I'm someone who I went through the default that we talked about right after the financial crisis. I had a pretty hard time and I defaulted on my student loans and then my my uh, situation changed and I was able to pay off my student loans in full. And, and what that experience of paying off my student loans left me with was a sense that everybody should have that freedom. Everyone should have that privilege. I, I don't want people to suffer just because I did, right? The whole idea of social <laughs> progress is that future generations don't have to go through what we went went through if it was bad. Um, you know. So I will say this though, uh, to the polling, what's really striking is again, student debt cancellation is actually more popular just by a few points with people who have no college than people who went to college. So this idea that there are these millions of bitter uh, Americans out there who will be angry if someone else gets debt relief, it's not really reflected in the polling. It seems to me that it's something that, you know, right-wing commentators are trying to push out there. Uh, But it actually seems when you actually go out and talk to people that folks understand the cost of college is out of control and that debt cancellation is pretty darn fair.
0: You've convinced me. Um, you have another way of thinking about student debt. You say your debt is someone else's asset. How does that work?
2: Yeah, it's interesting, right? Because you just said there, we're encouraged to think about education as an asset. What we, what the, we at the Debt Collective are trying to get people to recognize is that actually your your loans are an asset, and. This is this is really a basic point. I mean, the debts we hold are bundled <laughs> and owned by creditors on the other side, and and people profit off of those. They profit from the interest and fees, and so and uh, you know what economists point out is that our debt payments are actually a form of wealth transfer from the poor, from struggling debtors, to the wealthy who hold those debts as assets, who are invested in them. And so what happens is that you know creates the illusion of prosperity. Okay, so you borrow, you have some money today, but ultimately what you're doing is uh, through those monthly payments, concentrating wealth (laughs) at the top. Uh, And so what what you can recognize when you see your debt as an asset is that actually it's a form of power. Uh, It's not just a burden. If you recognize that it is someone else's asset and you join with other debtors, um, then you could wield those debts together. Uh, through strategic forms of nonpayment, the debt collective has organized, debt strikes. And so what we realize is that individually, our debts overwhelm us, but together, they make us powerful.
0: So some people say, well, forgiving all student debt, that's a little too big for Biden, given the situation in the Congress. How about if he just extends the freeze on student debt interest payments? Or how about if he cancels the first 10,000? Won't that help Millions of people?
2: Well, he should cancel it all. I mean, I think this is, you know, I can make lots of economic arguments about how canceling every penny of student debt will boost the economy, which it will. It will create jobs. I mean, to me, I'm very committed to the moral argument, which is that education shouldn't be a commodity. And in fact, a few generations ago, education was basically free and publicly provided. So let's return to that sensible model. Um, Look, I think they do need to extend the payment pause, and it would be quite a hack to just extend it forever. <laughs> you couldn't <laughs> do that. In fact, um, I think they do need to they they need to extend it so that they can actually figure out the logistics of cancellation. Um, and the problem with canceling ten thousand dollars is that uh, huge numbers of people would have. That number just return practically overnight because of interest, right? Because their, their payments are structured in such a way that, um, you know, the, the balance is ballooning. Uh, there's really no reason for the Democrats to go small on this. The more debt they cancel and the more they do it broadly, instead of trying to restrict the people who benefit, the easier it is administratively, right? They just clear out accounts. The less likely it is for there to be some kind of bureaucratic mess up that frustrates people uh, the more folks whose lives are transformed by this, the more uh, goodwill they'll uh, generate in the in the general public uh, and the less suffering there will be you know and the bigger the economic boost so this is something where there's just there's really no economic moral or political reason to go small I mean I think there's every reason for uh, the president to pick up that pin.
0: So tell us about Monday April 4th what's the plan?
2: Debtors are bussing in and flying in and driving in from across the country to meet at the Department of Education to tell Joe Biden to pick up the pen. There will be a debtor's assembly. that debtor's assembly is something the debt collective often does. It's uh, essentially a circle where people talk about their debts and get rid of that shame and that stigma, right? And see that other people are in the same boat, start building solidarity. We'll also be marching around the Department of Education, calling for a jubilee. And a jubilee is... uh, you know a kind of biblical commandment right and actually uh going back the word originally in hebrew means trumpet <laughs> the trumpet <laughs> of freedom so we'll be having we'll have brass bands we'll have teach-ins, and just demonstrating uh to the administration uh that people aren't letting this go we're also inviting people who can't be in dc to participate in what we're called calling take your debt to work day we're We're red Wear some masking tape or a sticker with uh, either your personal debt amount or the average debt in your state and just start talking to people. Have a one, you know, Start one of those assemblies, right, where, where you invite people to get, get over the shame, to kind of come out of the shadows, politicize their debt so we can start building the power that we need to change the system.
0: Astra Taylor of the Debt Collective, you can find more information about the Day of Action in Washington, D.C. at DebtCollective.org. Thank you, Astra. This is great. Thanks so much for having me. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Now it's time to talk about antidepressants, the benefits, and the dangers. For that, we turn to P.E. Moskowitz. They run a newsletter about capitalism and psychology called Mental Health, health spelled H-E-L-L-T-H. They've published in The New Yorker, New York Magazine, Mother Jones, and The Nation, where their article, Breaking Off My Chemical Romance, is featured in the magazine's new special issue on drugs. We reached them today in New York City. P.E. Moskowitz, welcome to the program.
3: Thanks so much for having me.
0: Well, you report that 13% of Americans were on some kind of antidepressant in 2018. And of course, that was before the pandemic made all of us more anxious and depressed. I have friends who will tell you that their lives were saved by Prozac or Lexapro or Zoloft and others who will say they wanted to take them but couldn't because of the side effects. But you write in The Nation that antidepressants may often cause more harm than good and that new research has found that the drugs are less effective and more dangerous than many previously believed. So let's start with what we've been told about the causes of depression. The theory that I learned is that it's caused by a chemical imbalance in the brain. So it should be understood as something can can be treated with medication. And we are very lucky that science has discovered SSRIs, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, which correct the chemical imbalance. You say scientists now believe that theory is flawed. Please explain. Yeah, so... The
3: interesting thing about the chemical imbalance theory is that most scientists never really believed it. Um it was a theory first of all not a fact. And even the the guy who who came up with the theory kept emphasizing this is a theory this is a theory. Now most scientists, you know, even the most pro Psychiatric medication uh, scientists acknowledge the brain is much, much, much too complex to be boiled down to a few molecules like serotonin or dopamine or norepinephrine, um, which these drugs like SSRIs affect. So the idea that we actually know what's going on in the brain when we prescribe these drugs is is simply put just fake. Um, and it comes mostly from, from marketing. Um, there was actually a study done about why people think that chemical imbalance is the cause of depression. And uh the, the respondents mostly said that they got that information from from news reports and TV commercials, not from scientific papers. And you know, beyond that, it it goes to the very, the very way we study depression. You know, I quote someone in the story, a researcher who's a, a very pro-drug researcher, pro-prescription drug researcher. And she gives the example of, you know, if you have a toothache and you prescribe an, an opiate pain reliever for the toothache, right? If you study the reduction in pain, you find out a lot about how that pain reduction works, but you find out nothing about the cause of the actual toothache, right? So that that I think is a good metaphor for for depression too. We don't really know what's going on.
0: Okay, so we don't really know what causes depression, but millions of people say antidepressants help them so it's worth it for those people to take them, they say, even if we don't understand how or why they work. And you question that argument, too. Yeah, I mean, I think if if you're really depressed and something works for
3: you, I, I'm not telling everyone to go throw their antidepressants down the toilet or something but I think that we need a more nuanced and full picture of these drugs because often you only hear the the positive sides of them, right? So for some people, they do appear to work, although we don't know why. Some scientists say it's mostly placebo, which people kind of scoff at because they don't want to think they could be so greatly affected by a placebo. Um, but, you know, opiates w- work via placebo. Advil works via placebo. Everything works via placebo. Yeah,
0: I want to talk about placebos. You mentioned in your article for The Nation the Program in Placebo Studies at Harvard University. I never heard of this before. Sounds great. You say they discovered in 2014, this was eight years ago, that a placebo was about 50% as effective as real medication in treating migraines. That means that for every two people who were helped by the real medicine, one was helped by placebo. What are the findings about antidepressants then we wonder about antidepressants versus placebo I googled that and I got the answer all the antidepressants work better than a placebo but how much better
3: that's that's the million dollar question and most, most prescription drug research is funded by the prescription drug companies themselves. And they kind of selectively choose what to publish. So what this researcher at the Harvard Placebo Studies program, Irving Kirsch, did was dig up all the unpublished studies, the ones that prescription drug companies didn't want to see the light of day. And he found that when you combined all of those studies, the effect of most antidepressants was very, 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 very small or non-existent on average, right? And that's when we get down into the really nitty gritty of what is a significant difference. You know, they measure it by something called effect size and, you know, is basically like your life improving by two points on the effect scale, uh, a significant enough improvement to warrant antidepressants or to say that they are Effective, And then it all gets, you know, really muddled with someone in a study, their effect size, you know, goes up by 20 points, they're sleeping better, everything gets better on an antidepressant. And then someone else, their effect size does nothing like does that skew the results. So it seems like they're more effective for everyone, as opposed to just that one person, it gets really, really complicated. And I think what I wanted to do in this story is not come to a really concrete answer, because I feel like that's what so often happens is either people say these are miracle drugs, you should love them. And if you don't love them, then shut up. Or people (laughs) say, like, these are the most evil things in the world. Right. And to me, it's like we don't actually really know and we should stop pretending that we know the least we can ask for is a much fuller picture when we're being prescribed them about what, what they actually do,
0: the possible side effects they can have, and if they actually work for people. So yeah, let's talk about side effects. I read that the FDA requires that all antidepressants carry black box warnings. What is a black box warning?
3: It's kind of the most serious level of warning that you know a drug can make you suicidal or um, increase the chances of that you'll fly into like a murderous rage. I remember this this one time I was prescribed an atypical antidepressant called bilbutrin, which is very common, and you know it came with this humongous sticker on it that said, "If you start feeling like feelings of murder murderous anger towards uh, your family or something, like please discontinue the drug." And I was like, <laughs> like That's like- strange. Why didn't my psychiatrist tell me about it? <laughs> uh,
0: so they tell people that quote. Stopping antidepressant treatment abruptly or missing several doses can cause discontinuation syndrome. What is discontinuation syndrome? It's like any other drug that your brain becomes dependent
3: on. If you smoke cigarettes, if you um, drink coffee even, right? If you suddenly stop doing those things, your brain needs to rebalance its neurons to the absence of those chemicals. So the idea that antidepressants could somehow be different than any other chemical that affects the brain, again, was more marketing than it was science. And now what's coming out more and more is that the typical way of people getting off antidepressants is much too fast. If you go to most psychiatrists and you say you want you've been on an antidepressant for a few years and you want to get off, they'll say, cut the dose in half in a week and then stop the next week. And what people are finding is that they have to go down much, 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 much slower. And if they don't, um, and this is something I've experienced personally. There's all of these horrible side effects from quote unquote brain zaps, which makes it feel like your brain is just like a TV that was turned off for a second or something and like physical pain and uh, anxiety, increased anxiety, all of these things that are really horrible. And if you go, you know, read the forums on the internet where people are are struggling with these things and seeking out help from each other, it's it's just really mind boggling that we don't talk about it more because it's really scary
0: you conclude that there is an antidepressant industry that is similar to big tobacco in its funding of research and support for academics who favor its profit margins. And you show that research that challenges industry profits gets attacked. This is research showing that antidepressants are not very effective, as well as research that shows that they are more dangerous and that withdrawal effects can be very severe tell us more about the the industry um and its attacks on its critics
3: yeah so there's a very lucrative industry and like any other industry that there's money to be made uh they're very uh protective of of the ability to make money so We've seen a lot of reporting on this when it comes to things like uh, OxyContin, right? Where doctors were paid on these lavish trips to Hawaii or wherever and given all these kinds of perks to kind of give their stamp of approval on this drug. And the same thing happens with Zoloft and Prozac and every other drug that's coming to market. I think it's less that uh, the prescription drug companies are like going and trying to like Quash any negative story. And it's more that they're trying to put a positive spin on every single drug that comes to market uh, with their money and with their influence. But I think another another important thing to note is that this isn't just about, you know, a kind of corrupt science, although it is about that too. I think it's also about this over-reliance on the kind of miracle of of science in this country, right? That we think any new breakthrough is the best thing since sliced bread. And that this keeps happening over and over and over again with uh, mental health medication.
0: Yeah, you're right. There's a history of mass marketing of drugs for mental health ailments that that we need to remember going back at least to the 50s. Whatever happened to Thorazine? Whatever happened to Milltown? yeah these
3: were in the 50s like the the drugs du jour they helped everyone calm down they uh, took the edge off things and millions upon millions of Americans uh, were prescribed them um at some point milltown uh, was one of the most popular prescription drugs in America by far and then everyone, Kind of said, whoops! Maybe these things aren't so great. They cause people to have severe discontinuation syndromes. People start shaking, and they gain a lot of weight. They get dependent on these things. They, it, you know, it has a host of side effects. So then, all of a sudden, a new miracle drug cropped up, and that was benzodiazepines like Xanax and Clonopin uh, and things like that. And again, it was like, oh, a miracle cure for anxiety and uh, you know the general woes of American life. And then, surprise, surprise, you know, 10, 20 years later, they're like, oh, whoops, everyone's getting addicted to this. It has horrible withdrawal side effects. And then, antidepressants, right? And the same thing happens all over again. Um, so, it's just this cycle of overenthusiasm, uh, kind of thinking we can cure depression or anxiety with this silver bullet. And then, backtracking and being like, whoops, these are not as perfect as we thought.
0: You've read a lot of the research on this. What is the research about the effects of going to see a therapist compared to taking SSRIs. There's
3: surprisingly not much research on, uh, like, long-term research on which is better. But the little that's out there shows that, you know, continuous therapy is equally effective to antidepressant treatment, if not more so. But the problem is that the, the causes of depression and anxiety are so complex. I mean. We see a rise in it during the pandemic, of course, because people are lonely and stressed and working, you know, crazy jobs and all the rest. And, and so we try to boil that down to kind of a chemical imbalance or even something that can be worked out in therapy. I mean, can can the, the ravages of this world really be worked out in a therapist's office? Probably not. not that's not to say a therapy doesn't help. But that we can't really say there's a cure for depression or anxiety when the causes of depression, and anxiety are things that are kind of out of our control. So, so, yes, therapy is as effective as antidepressants, but that's not the whole solution. You know, there needs to be a more holistic answer to, to why we're so depressed and anxious as a society.
0: Let me go back to discontinuation syndrome for a minute here. You write in The Nation about your own discontinuation experience. Right.
3: So I had a really hard time about maybe four or five years ago, you know, moved to a new city, was really stressed out in a bad relationship, et cetera. um, And went to a psychiatrist and she put me on Effexor, which is an SNRI, which is very similar to an SSRI. And at first it, it's kind of seemed to work. You know, there were like lots of weird side effects um, I gained some weight, there was some sexual dysfunction. Uh, there was you know lots of things that that were worrying about it, but it, it quelled my anxiety at least. And then I started feeling a little better and so I thought okay, I can get off of this and I got off. And then a few months later, I just had essentially the worst mental breakdown of my life you know i thought i was going crazy that i'd end up in a mental institution and for a while i didn't know why and and of course there were you know many factors i'm not going to blame it all on on the withdrawal from a drug but um but As soon as i reinstated that medication a lot of the symptoms of that kind of mental breakdown went away um you know like my hands stopped shaking um i felt less uh crazy and but i didn't feel back to normal and that's kind of what got me interested in these drugs and whether they're safe or not because researchers I talked to for this piece, other people I've talked to who have gone through similar things, it's much, much more common than I realized. And that kind of made me think, wait, is this this related? And if it is related, then why is no one talking about these possible side effects uh, or unintended consequences?
0: P.E. Moskowitz. You can read their newsletter, Mental Health, spelled H-E-L-L-T-H, online. And you can read their article about the dangers of antidepressants for the nation's special issue on drugs at thenation.com now. Thank you, P.E. This is great. Thank you so much. And we have news about a big victory for immigrants being held in detention while seeking asylum. This is a major legal victory for immigrants' rights. The federal court has prohibited ICE, Immigration and Customs Enforcement, and immigration judges from setting unreasonable bonds for detained immigrants by failing to consider their financial resources. Before this case, the government was not required to con- to consider ability to pay when setting bond for individuals facing deportation. M- many immigrants remained incarcerated for months or even years simply because they could not afford the bond. Stephen Reinhardt, the late Ninth Circuit judge, put it in 2017 when this case was getting started, while the temporary detention of non-citizens may sometimes be justified by concerns about public safety or flight risk, no person may be imprisoned merely on account of his poverty. The landmark settlement brings to an end a class action lawsuit called Hernandez v. Garland, which was filed in 2016 and litigated by the ACLU of Southern California, along with pro bono attorneys. It's not, of course, the Constitution does forbid incarceration based on poverty, and that applies to both citizens and non-citizens. The, the plaintiff in the case was Cesar Matias. He's a native of Honduras, who fled to the United States to escape the persecution he suffered on account of his sexual orientation. In L.A., he worked as a hairstylist, and he had a job in a clothing factory. He was arrested by ICE in 2012 and locked up in the Santa Ana Jail while his application for asylum was being decided. Bail was set at $3,000, but he didn't have $3,000, so he remained in jail for four years. The settlement requires ICE and immigration judges in Southern California to consider a detained person's financial circumstances and financial ability to pay a bond and not set bond at a greater amount than necessary to ensure the detained person's appearance at future immigration proceedings. It also requires... Uh, that ICE consider whether the detained person may be released on alternative conditions of release. The ACLU Deputy Director of the Immigrants' Rights Project, Michael Tan, concluded no one should be locked up because they don't have the money to buy their freedom. This settlement will help put brakes on our out-of-control immigration prison system and provides a model for reform throughout the country. Finally, it's time for your Minnesota moment. Of course, that's news from my hometown of St. Paul that you won't get from Sean Hannity. The Minnesota House, led by Democrats, has passed legislation seeking to rein in work speed quotas at Amazon warehouses in the state, saying that these work speed requirements have produced disproportionate injury rates. Some Amazon warehouses in the state have injury rates 30% higher than state averages for the industry. The State Department of Labor would be tasked with investigating warehouses with high injury rates. Workers could also have access to their work speed data, and their employers could not order them to meet quotas that would prevent them from taking breaks for meals or for prayer time. Also, there's a continuing fight over rent control in Minnesota. Minnesota state law already makes it difficult for cities to enact their own rent control ordinances. City councils and mayors cannot pass such rent restrictions on their own. Instead, they have to have a referendum, a vote of residence, either a charter amendment vote or a policy referendum. Minneapolis and St. Paul did exactly that last November. Minneapolis authorized the city council to create a rent control ordinance, and St. Paul voted to approve a citizen-drafted rent control ordinance. But uh, this week, a Republican-led committee in the state Senate approved a bill that would not only remove this pathway to rent control, but it would make this change retroactive to November 1st of last year, which is before the rent control measures approved by voters in Minneapolis and St. Paul. Rent control in both cities would therefore be canceled. And the bill, it was retroactive. It's unlikely to pass the House, which is controlled by Democrats, but it shows how Republicans represent landlords rather than tenants. This has been your Minnesota Moment, a special feature of this broadcast. That's it for today's Living in the USA. Our sound editors are Will Broughton and Alan Minsky. Our social media maven is Renee Reynolds. KPFK's programming traffic director is Matt Perez. Thanks as always to Rye Cooter for our theme music Mambo Sinuendo.